Hey guys, thanks for joining us. So great to have you back here. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Welcome to Overcrest. We've got three guests with us today. We've got Mike, also colloquially known as Space Jew. For uh, for many, many years, we've got Matt and Wait, Dan. Wait, was it, was it Space Jew? It, it, it was. It was. I don't think... He's not Jewish. Yeah, it started off as Jew. And... We dropped the, the Jew part. It's just <laughs> oh, the, we don't do Space Jew yeah, anymore? Space. Just Space. That makes sense. Okay, that's fine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, brought, I, right. I wanted to have these guys in because they do a lot of uh, um, champ car racing, um, right? Is it champ? Well, be budget endurance racing. Budget guess, endurance yeah. racing. And, and it's something I've always wanted to do but never had the time to do. So I was hoping maybe I could live vicariously through these guys for, for a few minutes. You once told me, Chris, that you don't even like track time. I do. I have never said that. You told, we can rewind. It's on tape somewhere. I don't necessarily like driving my 911 on the track. I've said Maybe that. that's what it is. Because it is a shitty track car. It's terrible at it. It's very, very poor. So much for all your, you know, building off of the heritage of the racing. My car specifically is very, very, <laughs> is not good. I can't afford to fix it, so it's not going to go on the track, which I think we'll find out in a little bit. You, they, things do break on, on, the, on the track. Uh, yeah, I've heard that, turns out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Dan, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how you started the, uh, the, the, the team, the race team? So back in the fall of 2010, I had a, uh, I was rebuilding my first E30, um, just helping out a friend. And uh, a guy showed up at my house trying to buy some parts for his E30. And uh, it looked kind of out of place. The guy was obviously pretty well off, and I didn't know why he was buying parts for this piece of junk old car. <laughs> and uh, he started telling me about what he was doing with it. And the subject of chump car came up, and we started talking to him about um, you know, what kind of racing was it? What did it take to get into it? You know, what was the background? And Is this something that you kind of wanted to do before this guy no, was ever No, no, never even heard of it. Yeah, okay. this was uh, completely new. And um, so you didn't that was in the, or anything? Like, I did one track day, I think, ever. And I, and I always felt like I was, you know, I had a little bit of a, the, the knack of it, but... Um, were you Never really uh, an older anything. BMW guy? No, I actually started off in Hondas back in the day. Yeah, okay. I was doing Hondas. And uh, at this point, I was, I don't even know what car I was driving back then. I think I, I was in the Volkswagen. No, I was in a Volkswagen. Mark 5 Golf. Mark, yeah. 5 Golf. Mark 5 Golf. And I had a, my old 240Z that I've had, also, I had for a I long time. Add, that summer, it wasn't rebuilding one E30. We <laughs> rebuilt three E30s that summer. And Something happened with one of the yeah, engines, right? No, that was... an engine swap, and then... And then uh, we assembled one. another one out yeah. of spare parts. And then we flipped a third one. And then we okay. flipped another one. And but we just had, like, like tons of spare parts sitting around. So, yeah, that's where this, say, uh, this, this guy like came around. the making of a reality show? Like, it, uh, <laughs> build an E30 yeah, in 30 days? Yeah, exactly. Well, my wife was going to school out of town, so None I had a lot of free time. None of you guys were married at the time, I don't no, think. No, no, so none of us were. So this was just bro-out session. Yeah, basically. So uh, Space and myself uh, pretty much lived together. In an uninsulated year. garage. You were doing all this uninsulated garage, yeah, propane heater, yeah. super, I mean, super bare bones. Oh, and I, I haven't even gotten to the whole building the race car part yet. But um, so this guy came around. He told me to tell me what he was doing. The E30 seemed like a good candidate. I originally was looking for a Honda, but this uh, I bought my first E30 for the race team um for three hundred dollars. So, how did it go from being a Honda to being a E thirty? Because because that's where my background was. I knew how to work in that thing, like you know, nobody's business. I had old ninety one EF hatchback. Okay, that's where I started, and uh, the BMWs after rebuilding three of them that year, we just kind of figured out they were pretty easy to work on. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, after it hearing the, the whole, success, it wasn't the whole God's chariot thing. There was, was none of that then. In twenty, I mean, in twenty ten, that was way head. before. That was way before any of that. Yeah. So, okay. 
Yeah, way before the whole E30. Yeah, there was no fanboys of E30s back then. Right, I mean, they were still pretty cheap. I mean, you could get oh, them. Oh, yeah. I bought mine for 300 bucks. It had barely any rust on it, but the engine was half disassembled, half it was in the trunk, and uh, we turned that into a race car over that winter and raced our first race that spring. Um, none of us had built a race car before. None of us had, uh, we had way too many people. I think we had seven people officially on the team that, uh, at that point. Was that when Euroworks was sponsoring? We had the, uh, yes, I think bought your steering wheel or something like that. Yeah. first race seat was Euroworks. Yes, it was. a. That's right. That's right. And, uh, then, you know, as, uh, we had that season finish, didn't win anything, didn't break too much that year. Um, the following year, you know, as what happens with uh, this kind of stuff, team members started to fall off. You know, life responsibilities started to pick up for guys. So sure. we, the team slimmed down to, went from seven down to four. And then the following year uh, is when Matt came in. Matt was uh, a, a someone that I had met a long time ago, had moved away and is now coming back. And, um, you know, we were just kind of chummy. And uh, he was looking to get into racing and had done some of his own autocross stuff and SCCA. And uh, that stars aligned and Matt came on the team. And uh, now myself, uh, Matt, and another friend of ours, and then uh, our buddy Mike slash Space is uh, played a big support role since the very beginning. So what's the, what's the for for someone like me that doesn't I have no idea whatsoever what it takes to get into any of this. What's the what's the cost of entry in terms of money and time and experience? Well, what? and before you even go there, how does this league, this racing league, stack up kind of in our grand scheme of you know? Because I know Lemons is pretty popular out there because that's kind of supposed to be your your grassroots, super cheap racing series. Where does this fall in line with all that? And as Chris asked, you know, what does it really take to get in in this? So, if you know about the racing series that started out, Lemons was, I think, the first. Right. And they came into it saying, we're going to be a place where you can have a lot of fun and bring a car that you're semi-serious about, but it's it kind of a like joke a little bit, a too. It was a joke, right? It almost seemed like, a, like some of the cars were just ridiculously silly. And it wasn't really a, a joke because everybody knew that's what they were doing. Right. Well, and that's what really drew us to Chump Car at the very beginning is that it wasn't a set up to be a joke. There wasn't a penalty where someone has to come over and weld stuff to the side of your car. That yep. didn't exist in Chump <laughs> Car at that point. And they did have a little a couple aspects of that. So, you know, things like theme counted where, you know, that like our Chump Car name was we were supposed to be the most interesting chumps in the world. <laughs> which was a play on the whole Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world that never right. really worked. But, I mean, it was things like that. We that had an amazing library for that, though. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, it was perfect. You'll have to get me a picture. I'll, yeah, I, I'll say, I can only up. imagine. The mustache on the hood of the car is still infamous. Wonderful. So tell me more about what it takes to get into this. Like, just the, the time investment, the financial investment, and maybe how much experience do you think? What, what can you tell people that you wish you would have known back when you got started? Not to underestimate the amount of time and commitment this takes. Um, you know, we're we are not a wealthy team. We uh, we show up with cardboard boxes full of parts in our you know nineteen ninety three Ford Cube van. Uh, we you will quickly realize that uh, are there other teams out there that have money that you're racing against? Uh, like you could not imagine, even in a series like this. In fact, uh, yeah. So there are people. So so to get back to it, it was le a lemons, and then Chump Car came around to make it more serious. Now there's WRL, and there's quite a few other series on top of that that 
or maybe there's some dispute. I'm sure people listening are going to get angry, but it's like WRLs maybe a little bit higher up, maybe, let's say. But you've got people showing up to Chump Car in half-million-dollar-plus trailers. You've got Acura Real-Time. Is that the right name of it? Yeah, Acura Real-Time was showing up with their uh, trailer they were going around the country in for their actual real racing series, okay. and they were just rolling out this garbage car that was good enough to get oh, into. Wow. That had literally <laughs> off the off the parts room shelf brand-new like, uh, like Integra Type R parts on it. 90s Civic. That was a brand-new Civic. Right. Know, Factory support. So ostensibly, uh, their garbage car. How do you <laughs> a factory garbage car? So right. So do you, relative, how do right? you guys feel racing against something like that? Uh, well, considering we did really well to begin with, you it maybe makes you feel a little overconfident to a certain extent uh, because you know they come out there and they're dealing with their problems and so on and so forth. We did beat the real time car. We did beat them. I didn't want to say that, but. Um, but so there's that, like an underdog thing that's kind of cool with that. There's an underdog thing. I would certainly say in a lot of these series that money is not necessarily the deciding factor. That's what people should keep in mind. What is the deciding factor and something that's hard to overcome is there's guys out there who are racing that have been racing as long as you've been alive. Right. And it doesn't really matter in this series because they sort of try and level it out in the rules. It doesn't matter some in some cases how much money you throw at it those guys are just going to be better. They're just good. They're just good. And that's the great thing is, in my opinion, is you can be out on the track. You're out there. You get passed by them. Um, but you can follow their line for a long time. And in this kind of series, you're out on the course for minimum an hour. Right. If you're not out there for an hour as a driver, you're not even remotely in contention. And this is an hour of a how long of a race? So generally speaking, you're out there for two hours or as close to two hours as you can get into an eight-hour race in one day. You race eight hours on Saturday. You race eight hours on Sunday. So what thing? What people should keep in mind is, hands down, this is the least expensive way to get the most amount of wheel-to-wheel racing on the planet. So what do you guys think down. you spend? I mean, let's take travel time out of it. But what do you think you you spend on the race itself? Get the car ready, everything like that. Just each for somebody race, that wants well, to maybe yeah, do it. Yeah, each race, uh, as far as a budget, when you look at, it's as if the car does not break um, and have anything expensive that needs to be repaired. Uh, after entry fees, fuel, travel expense, everything else, uh, legitimate cost estimate would probably be three thousand dollars for a yeah. weekend. Yeah, so to operate for one weekend. So, so it's still up there. I mean, that's still. A, I mean, that's a significant chunk of change. And yeah. is that is that entry fees? Is that tires? Is that consumables? What what does that break down? Consumables. As? So you've got let's say twelve hundred dollars for an entry fee, a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. Uh, a lot now, of people. Now does that go into a purse for the winter, or what too. is yeah, so or rental fees for we the can, track? We can break that down. A lot of people hear that and they think you, the winner must walk away with, with like a lot of money. The winner basically walks away with their entry fee back. Okay, so you're not going to be wow. in this to make money. There are teams which are sponsored. Obviously, we were sponsored in the past uh, by Euroworks and and quite a few others, and that sort of changes over time. But realistically, what you're paying for is the cost for the uh, series owner to rent that track okay you're paying for the person who sits hopefully in an ambulance all day long <laughs> insurance for two days else. yeah you're paying yeah. for insurance you're paying for the tow truck drivers because in this series turns out a lot of guys are getting towed off the track uh, uh, yep. throughout the day I suppose there's corner workers and every other there's also corner yeah. workers out there at some tracks they work voluntarily but at some they get paid and so you're paying for corner workers yep um, so those are the things that are going into your entry fee. And when you sort of think about that, it's not too bad. Although, like I said, 
a lot of people balk at that at that price. But then you've got tires. You're going to go through a set of tires in a weekend. You may be able to get a second weekend out of them. Right. You're going to go through a set of brakes, let's say. Uh, some teams, we've been able to get away with not wearing out a set of brakes every weekend. Well, and as the uh, your competitiveness in the field goes up, the cost goes up because you're, you're using better tires that burn out quicker. You're using more aggressive brakes that burn out in a day. So you're switching pads at, at, after each stint of the race. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, it can get really expensive, but it doesn't how do you guys need keep yourself from spending? Like, because it seems like it would be like, oh man, if I could just get these Hawk brake pads or whatever the case may be, just to to try to push the envelope. How do you not? How do you resist trying to keep going for it? I mean, you don't. <laughs> so, so I, honestly, I, I mean, I've only ever been on this team, so I don't have great perspective. But there is a point, and it's sort of automatic. Where Nick and Dan and I both all go like, oh, that's that's not going to happen. Or like, we really need to do this because a little bit of that money when you put forward feels like an investment. So if you're going there on a weekend and you fall out of the race because of your brakes, that's enough of an anger where you say, all right, we're going to deal with these brakes. You got to spend a little bit more. That's what you got to do. Right. Because you've got all that time, too. Exactly. Which isn't even accounted for. And if you yeah. get there and you're out in an hour. You've got that sunk cost of time that now is eating at you in the back of your mind when you fail out for a simple reason. But the, like, final, like, cost per hour breakdown on a weekend, like, if it's three grand for that entry, all your consumables and whatnot, and you're getting 16 hours on the track. Yeah, that's nothing. No other driver's event can, you know, come close to that that amount of time and experience behind the wheel you get. So I talked to Dick Barber when I was interviewing him for something else, and all the stuff you guys are kind of talking about in terms of the entry fees and how the entry fees come back to you and how everything's paid almost seems like the way that racing was in the 70s. It really it, it really seems like it's close. I mean, now it's completely out of control, like the real pro racing and stuff like that. But what you guys are doing really seems close to, to the model that they used to have back then, you know, just based on what he told me. Yeah, and I think that's partially because the people who are running these series are older guys who remember that time and... Of course, I think we all have fond memories, even at our age, of how things used to be, and some of them are complete garbage, and some of them are real. And I think those guys remember what it like used to be like to race with the SCCA or so on sure. in the 60s and 70s and said, that's really what we need to get back to. And I think there's a lot of older people in racing who look and say, if we don't come up with something like this, there's no way that young people are going to have the experiences we had. And, you know, they think of that as a tragedy. And even still, you look at the way cars are going on the road and you, you can't even can you even imagine taking a, a midsize BMW sedan from today in 30 years and stripping it out and racing it? They're so complicated. Yeah, I don't so, think you can even do it. So they're staring down this path of can anybody even have the fun that I had in the past? And they're, they're making it happen. They're getting out there and creating these series. So these guys, are they, are the guys that run these events, are they making any money on it or are they just kind of doing this? As far as I know, it earns them their living, but I don't think they're buying a second home. Off right. Of this. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no hot tub in the it backyard. Is, it's there. It becomes their full-time job and I think it supports them. And I mean, they, they choose the job. So obviously some of the compensation is, the happiness they got out of out of facilitating it but so for some of them that are running it it is their job right right one more question on on money before we get change gears sure <laughs> car pun um you guys as a team do you split like seat time financing everything even 
or is there like you contribute maybe I'll I'll pay you know 30% of our our cost this or maybe it's not even organized that specifically oh no yeah our uh, other teammate slash accountant keeps a spreadsheet okay. with lots of colors <laughs> on it and uh, yeah we, we, we split it up pretty evenly we, like last race we sold that we sold a seat Okay, because yep. our other teammate was unfortunately not able to race, and or was uh, that was that phone call? Am I not in your phone book, or um, you wouldn't want to bet at this one anyway, so you didn't miss out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a uh, it, there are things you can do to make up a little extra cash. Like we have small small sponsors, like uh, EuroWorks is one. Um, you know, different businesses I've been associated with over the years have pitched in a couple bucks that just because you, know, you talk to them about what you're doing and they said they said man that's really cool and I'd, I'd, right. I'd, i wouldn't mind giving you a couple bucks for that and um you could supplement some of that cost that way sure you know? so do you guys have any uh anecdotal stories or anything that's that kind of defines what it's like is there anything that's happened to you guys it's like this is this is kind of a typical thing this do you is, want a good story i want or a, so, a bad story so we have lots of stories there's two of them right this i want, is, want an entertainment there's two story. there's two Whatever ways works. there's two ways this can go so the, let's talk about we'll talk about the first race we ever took podium how about that oh. so the first race we took podium was at Brainerd right so we're up at Brainerd and it's been a really long day I need some whiskey for this yeah so it's been a, it's been a really long weekend uh, we're out there and at the time there were four drivers on the team and the fourth driver is out there and he doesn't like to drive maybe as aggressively as the rest of us and we are hunting for third place right now. We're okay. in third place, and there's a team, a really, really good team behind us. And so being being the engineer that I am, I'm in my spreadsheet. I'm entering the times into the spreadsheet for our competition and for us. And that spreadsheet I made calculates, spits out when they're basically going to be battling for that position, when they're going to be in a position to pass. Like us. how many laps left yes. before they finally and I basically get there. said, you need to get your time under two minutes or he will pass us before the end of the race. Okay. Period. What was he driving? The other team? Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was the most amazingly modified, like yeah, junkyard yeah. modified Honda Civic, like grabbed a turbo from this and an <laughs> intercooler for that, which was partially sticking out of the hood. This particular guy that we were racing against is in love with engines and machines and race cars, and he just eats, sleeps, and dreams building these things, and they are amazing. Like, okay. Even after he smashed that chassis up, he sold that drivetrain to another team, which raced it for a really long time to Wow. We're just saying a lot. I mean, that's, I mean, the thing's racing wide open for oh, hours oh, he, and hours. He, he's, a, he's an amazing uh, car builder, yeah. So, so we're racing for this position. There are a few pits down. So you're sitting in your pit. They're sitting in their pit. Once you both are looking at live timing and realizing that you are now enemies, you start to see <laughs> sideways glances at the other team <laughs> yeah. because you're looking. Are they are they looking for tires? Are they fiddling with their fuel bottles? Is there any signs of anything that might interrupt them or yeah, cause sure. any problems? They're looking over at us. So we're all freaking out. Our pit gets quiet. Their pit gets quiet. We're all serious. You've got your hands in your pockets. You're just right. standing there. So <laughs> what happens is over the radio, we are begging. We are begging like, you've got to get it under two minutes. I know the tires are feeling weird. I know the brakes are feeling weird. Just do it. And well, how much over two minutes were they? What just were, a, just a hair. Okay. So how much of an ask was it? Uh, well, it was a big ask. Yeah, yeah it was really? a very big ask. So this time. so and and that's not to. I mean, so this is the this is the race car at the end of of day two. It's a little beat up, and sure. when you're out there, you got a little bit of vibration because the tires have been flat spotted a few times and things. You know, it's a little nerve wracking. So we're asking them to do this. Well, what happened was. 
when you're in endurance racing and you're doing a good job of it, you are very aware of yellow flags, any kind of slowdowns on the track, anything that you can come into pit and make a change and take advantage without losing too much time. Well, right. we got a yellow flag, and we just said, get in here right now. We took uh, our, our other teammate, Nick. We threw him in the car. We didn't even have time to hook up comms, and we just said, you need to throw down 158s, 159s. <laughs> we don't care if you're tail sliding the whole time. It doesn't matter. Make it happen. <laughs> right. He got back out there with a driver change and held on to third place with the other team coming in. Just I don't even know how many few seconds it was oh, behind, yeah. but they were right behind us right behind us and that was the first time we ever podiumed and that was probably the greatest feeling the f- that we've maybe ever had well, that had been oh, building absolutely. for hours i mean you're thinking about all of that tension just finally it, it built it builds up and and then you kind of are you're addicted like every time after that you're just like i want to feel that again and and, and uh that's kind of what keeps you coming back even when it when it's a bad story which i think probably dan can tell <laughs> well yeah yeah i could definitely tell a few um we were kind of plagued with success uh, our or Matt's first season with the team. So we had, I think we podiumed every race that season. Well, and we had a second place. Not the first time. The first time I was in the car and spun a rod bearing. Oh, there was that <laughs> thing. Yeah. That well, hopefully too. not really your fault. No, no. But uh, we Dan were, and Nick made sure to tell me it was my fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had a uh, we we had a two two or three seasons where we did really really well. We were top five every race. What, was um, there any one thing you can attribute that to? I think just kind of the team kind of came together. We figured out how to work on the car. I mean, there's things that you shake down every one of these races. You'll, and at this point, and you, you know race. the car. You know this chassis. I could tell you where every bolt in that thing goes with my eyes closed. And this yeah, is still the same E30 that you guys started out with. Th- at this point, yes. We've had two cars total, but at this point, it was still the same. And uh, um, where was I going with that? I don't remember. Motor carnage. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah. After <laughs> after having the success we did for uh, those uh, two or three seasons, um, I think we where Matt kind of mentioned you get a little overconfident sometimes that we started to tweak with things maybe we shouldn't have. Okay. And uh, there were a couple of times I remember one specifically where um, what was it two days before the race uh, we realized there was a problem with the engine we had just built and put in the car. So Matt and I spent. Oh uh, God! It had to been twelve hours in the garage in a hundred and it was like ninety degrees that weekend. Bugs everywhere. It was so gross. We rebuilt a motor out of spare parts we had sitting in the in the back of the garage. Um, motor wasn't anything spe- you know special, but it ran and it ran the whole race if I remember correctly. Now we I've we built so many engines for this thing and ran enough races now where they've all kind of blended together and I can't remember what happened to which one. Um, but this last season was probably our hardest. Um, we had two races where uh, we had to rebuild an engine or swap an engine at the track. Um, after you know you go out there for you know two hours and all of a sudden the engine's knocking or right. you know you blow a head gasket randomly or you can't figure anything else out and you know a, a good story I guess to tell would be the Milwaukee story. So we were out of the track for. Uh, God, I can't even remember how long. Probably an hour, hour and a half. Head gasket uh, f- was failing. Came back in. As soon as we let the thing cool down, the head gasket was completely shot. Um, spent uh, four hours diagnosing the problem. 
uh, spend another, you know, by this time, the, the rate, we're out of the race, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. And at uh, that point, you just want to get your time's worth that while you're there. I well, yeah. yeah. But so if it's first day, you know, there's always the option of do, can you fix this and get back out there? And uh, <laughs> we towards the end of the season, we we're having trouble making that. Um, making that call because everything's been so much work. But this specific time, we rallied and we're like, okay, we're going to figure something out. And um, I kind of went around the other teams looking for a different engine. Um, you know, a, a couple of our other teammates were, like, ready to pack up and go home. Everybody has had not enough sleep. We're all exhausted. We've been, you know, putzing with this car all day. You can't figure it out. Well, we find a team uh, that actually had a spare engine sitting in a garage in Milwaukee. This is when we were in Road America. And uh, <laughs> they're like, it's at my mom's house. You can go get it if you want. <laughs> so we put two guys, uh, Matt and Space, in the van, say, get your asses to Milwaukee. Nick and I will start pulling the engine out. And, like, just you guys tell the part when you get to the, the house. Yeah, so it was one of the other teams that was there, and he said, I have an engine of an of unknown quality sitting on an engine stand. It's yours. For I think he sold it for two hundred dollars. Yeah, two hundred dollars. Which at that point's hey. like I could use the block for two hundred bucks. Yeah, like, this why doesn't not? Work out. So, so we get all the way there, and this, this is guy, about an hour and a half. Well, maybe say, an hour. It, it's America? it's about an hour. Uh, in yeah. the in the race van, I was driving as Dan will contest. I drive the race van at high speeds. We made really good time <laughs> and, to pick that engine. Yeah. So we got we get down to Milwaukee. We're in the suburbs, and I don't even remember exactly where it was. And we get there, and I text the guy and he's like here's my mom's number so i'm talking to this guy who i met for 30 seconds i'm talking to his mom she's like oh my god i'll be i'll be right there i'll be right there and she was just hyped for this and i was like you don't even know me so she rushes home and opens up the garage and this kid's projects are everywhere like this is the most the most car hobby supportive mother that's ever existed on on the face of the planet and she's like I'll move whatever you need. I'll do. I mean, she's running out like in like her like work like business yeah. clothing. Really okay. nice clothing. Picking up greasy parts, moving all this stuff around <laughs> yeah. to get us this engine. And we're like, we can do this. And she just wouldn't stop. That's awesome. Me. Yeah. Just trashes everything she's wearing to help us get this engine in the back of the race van. So, I love, that's a good enthusiasm. Right so there. so we get it back into the van, kind of prop it up and bungee cord it in so it doesn't fall over. Race all the way back up to Road America. By then the motor's out. The motor we got that was on the stand had no accessories. We take all the accessories off the engine, put them on the new engine, get them in there. I think we finished at 12:30 in the morning. I was wondering what time of day this was at this point. We finished at about We finished at about 12:30 in the morning. The car turned over. At that point, you don't even care. Like it's just like I don't even care if this runs tomorrow. I'm just done. I got to sleep. So yeah. then we go Back to sleep. We get up at six in the morning. Are you camping? Are you in the near the van or we're in the van? We're in the van. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and it, it's it's a ten by ten by ten box van and, and we we sleep in the back yeah, and it's yeah. got all our okay. parts in it and uh, so so we get up in the morning. We check the car and everything seems good and we take it back out and race and have more problems after that basically uh, okay so and i mean basically it was an unknown motor you know you can't really be mad at the guy he, he offered us something that let us get back out there and right. we got six hours out of that motor yeah. yeah that is one thing i'd have to comment on is that at these races there is a certain kind of camaraderie that just kind of has developed that everyone, I mean, I've never met a team that hasn't been willing to 
borrow you a tool or find you an engine hoist or, you know, we were frantically looking for an engine hoist. So like, well, I don't have one, but, oh, go talk to this guy or maybe my buddy's got one or things like, you know, like he's talking about where he had to go get an engine from this guy's mom, you know, yeah. and um, it's been, uh, that's Sounds been a like really good Sounds like the most experience. awesome mom ever, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Camaraderie, like, in the pits is, like, something else. Like, everyone's wants to like see unless you're about to like overtake each other and then it's yeah like on the track it's racing but like in the pits it's you know people help out and and try with that even then it's always a silent you know hate or hatred towards one another but yeah it's a it's always been um you know i've had we've we've met some actually really good friends now that i watched him just shove his whole arm down into the fuel cell be like oh have you tried this He's soaking himself in gasoline for absolutely right. no reason. We that didn't even know us. the guy. Yeah. yeah. He, and now he's actually a good friend of ours. So it's. Well, that's uh, awesome. I mean, yeah, that's, he meets some really cool people. Truly, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. You know, is, is, you know, if you were doing this alone or not with your friends, there wouldn't be anywhere near as much fun as. Uh, and I'm not even sure if you got into it, you know, let's say professionally or semi professionally, you would find this. I think it's because you're at the amateur level. These are all people who are sacrificing huge amounts of their time and a decent chunk of money to basically get out there and race on real tracks for the fun of it for the fun of it right yep. and so everybody's out there having a good time uh everybody trades there's you know there's beer trading and there's food i got food <laughs> i'm cooking over here or, you guys have been working really hard here's some of our pizza uh like come over here we've got like a xbox or whatever you can play around you know this stuff back in the pits people having fun and then out on the track it's pretty serious. It, it, it's fairly serious. I think in Champ Car, in WRL, in a lot of these AER, these other series, the people who are out there doing the racing are very serious about doing it as well as they can. Um, but when you're in the pits, people are having a good time. People are looking to help you out. And that's, I think, one of the things that you can't get in any other kind of series. I don't think we can say it all any better than that. Um, before we go too much farther, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, Luther Westside Volkswagen. Luther Westside Volkswagen is the number one Volkswagen dealership in the country. They have the best selection of European cars in the Twin Cities. They have a unique inventory for all your needs. Uh, They also have a brand new facility that you should come check out today. They have friendly sales staff that are comprised of true enthusiasts who support the local scene. They're into autocrossing, SCCA. They're great guys that will work with you on finding your next car. You can find them at westsidevw.com. All right, welcome back, guys. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about is is Dan was always super into uh, um, car audio when I met him. And at the time, I think you had a Datsun with a RB25. RB25, yeah. Okay, which was awesome, by the way. And we did. I did miss that car, yeah. That was, a, that was an amazing car. There was I have a video of me watching him. I'm filming him as he's doing donuts around me. I was going to say, was that thing just like a burnout machine? It was, uh, yeah, that one, at that point, it was about 320 horsepower, and it was 2,300 pounds, and there was... Uh, so, it was, a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, but I wanted to ask you, kind of, because car audio doesn't really necessarily, at least from an outsider's point of view, doesn't really matter anymore, because all the stereos that are in the cars now are just fully I set up I was going to say, it's not that it doesn't matter, but I feel like our baseline now of when you go to the showroom and you buy a new car... It's, it's so it's, good. Like, it's it was so oh, good compared yeah. to I mean, back the, in the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like the days when you had your 89 Chevy Celebrity and it 
everything sounds terrible, you know? I mean, right. Um, so yeah, there's definitely been a big, and those things have like the little sliders where you grab it and you oh, slide yeah. it back and forth I for the that. volume. Yeah, there you go. Oh, you're trying to like drive and move a slider at the same time, <laughs> bouncing. Well, now you have to drive and operate a touchscreen. I was How just going to say, that's that? not any that's better than the I would, I would almost kill for a slider at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I've noticed that's getting really cool is vintage car audio. Um, and I really like the old Alpine stuff myself, like the old green button Alpines. Matt's rolling his eyes. Around. What's have, wrong with uh, Alpine? I have, uh, What's going on? It's a microwave. Uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually, yeah, I have become. Uh, I started out in car audio. That's how I got my basically intro into cars and um, grew up in that industry and uh, was an install tech for many years and have worked on just about anything you can possibly imagine. But. Um, in my old age now, I've kind of started collecting this kind of gear. So okay. I have, you know, some of the vintage Alpine products. I've got a bunch of old ADS stuff. I've got a bunch of uh, old kicker stuff. I have like one cabinet in my garage that's just dedicated to old car audio gear. And it's uh, one of my nerdy vices, I would say. So for an outsider not knowing much of anything about audio, is this kind of like the vintage cool as the way like vinyl now is making a resurgence? Or is it, I mean, I guess in that question, no, is the I quality there where, you know, there oh, is absolutely. a benefit to this, it? It sounds good. Some of the stuff w- was high, high quality. I would make the, uh, what, I guess I would make the analogy that it's it's to vinyl, like it sounds just a little different. You know, so not everything's like now everything's class D, full ridge class D. Um, everything on the old school side was class AB product, uh, class AB amplification on everything. One um, of the things that I like about the old stuff, though, is how it looks like. If yeah, you look at the way Ballpunk had you it, see with, it like, all the time. They had yeah. the little globes that you could stick out of the like with tweeters and they had um, the gooseneck Ballpunk stuff. With I the saw EQs. you had one of those. I remember yeah. that thing. Yeah, I mean, they had all kinds of crazy shit that you could do. And now everything just seems kind of integrated and like well, tucked away. Yeah. Nobody wants to see anything anymore. Uh, or or if you put a radio in your dash, it's this gaudy, awful I thing. Say, I mean, anyone in car audio that. remembers the Dolphins, which was an old Pioneer radio that had oh, Dolphins yes. that would dive across. I actually I had one of those too. Yeah. yeah, I had a couple of them probably. Whoa, it was and, so cool uh, at the time. Look at yeah, it's like a screen in my stereo, exactly, guys. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And now you that's not you see nothing but that. And but if you go into any forum, I mean, everyone's saying, "Hey, what? Who makes a radio that won't look like crap in my yep. dash?" Because nobody wants a disco ball in there anymore. But you want something clean and sleek. And like the old Alpines were great with the just simple green buttons or or, or amber buttons to match your dash. And Dan, why, Matt, why did you roll your eyes and start laughing when I mentioned Alpine right away? What was the? Well, there <clears throat> there is context in there a little bit of uh, Dan selling me an Alpine that's uh, been a little uh, tricky. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, well. Full disclosure, I am the Alpine rep for this region now, so uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, so I wanted to uh, touch on a story, and you guys can just feel free to shoot the shit with us as we go through this and just comment as you wish. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the history of Montana having no speed limit. Back in the day, you could drive through Montana, and there was there, it was whatever's Is reason. it still like that? No, no it's, it's not. not. And I didn't know that. I remember every 16-year-old in high school talking about that dreamland. That The, the, the dreamland, dream. right? Yeah, and I, I drove out to... As long as the sun was out, you could go as fast as you wanted. That was the There's original, all kinds... Like, I've never heard that was before. Was that the stipulation? Well, I remember it was as long as it was reasonable and prudent. Reasonable and prudent was is the word. how the law read. So this was... Um, up until the 70s, okay? So in right. 1974, President Richard Nixon signed an Emergency Energy Highway Conservation Act into law, 
which effectively reduced all the speed limits to 55 miles an hour. And this was due to the gas crunch. The gas crisis, yeah. That's I can't imagine driving across Montana at 55 miles an hour. Um, Montana Neither could anybody from Montana. That's why they had that speed limit. <laughs> exactly. Um, it effectively enacted a 55 mile an hour speed limit by threatening to kill funding for highways to states that weren't in compliance with the law. Montana met the letter of the law by fining violators five dollars for quote an unnecessary waste of natural resource unquote. So you could drive as fast as you want, and then they just pull you over and give you a five dollar bullshit ticket. I'm so happy well, you brought that up because I had a friend in high school whose dad was just blowing through Montana like that. And he remember getting pulled over, and the cop was like, "I have to write you a ticket for this unnecessary yeah. usage of." I, I didn't end, realize Mon- you were going to Montana. Talk about basically, that. just said was telling the federal government to shove it. Yeah, you know, with this, which is so Montana. You know, <laughs> so um, so then in uh, 1987, Congress uh, raised the speed limit to 65 miles an hour. Woo! And then in 95, President Clinton signed into uh, into law the National Highway System Designation Designation Act, repealing Nixon's speed limit and eliminating the highway funding penalty. Montana went back to the original law, saying at a rate of speed no greater than is reasonable or prudent. Violations are basically up to the officer's discretion. In 1988, there was a uh, a hearing um, on Rudy Stanko, and I want to just tell you about the guy who ruined everything for everybody. Okay? <laughs> he so, was unreasonable and imprudent. He, he got a ticket, and he basically what happened, and I'm, I won't read this whole thing, but um, he was ticketed for driving 85 miles an hour on Highway 200. Um, 85, big deal. Um, mm-hmm. He contested the, char- the charge in justice and district courts and was convicted by a jury twice. So then he went and he appealed it to, to, the, the, Supreme to the Supreme Court. Court of Montana. For an 85-mile-an-hour um, speeding ticket. Yep. Uh, basically saying, and then they... Um, it says neither the citing officer nor the attorney general at the time were able to specify a speed that would have been safe at the location where he was stopped. In its finding, the court also stated that the reasonable and prudent clause, because of its vagueness, denied defendants due process. So, so basically, he basically illuminated it. this kind of weird legal. Yeah, you can't lay that on his shoulders. Oh, totally. This Come guy was. On. Let me just tell you how much of a scumbag scumbag this guy was. I was gonna say. I got a little back history on this guy. Okay. <laughs> uh, his interaction with the courts, both before this case and since, have been prolific. He was found guilty in 1984 of violations of the Federal Meat Inspection Act, a crime for which he was sentenced to six years in prison and fined seventy thousand dollars. He was also convicted in 2006 of of being a prohibited person in possession of firearms and ammunition. Um, but in Montana, had he just opted to pay the $70 fine, he could have made the ticket go away, and, the, and without that violation being recorded, they probably still would have had You know, no I bet he limit. wore a plaid suit to court, too. He probably did. So this this, <laughs> this Stanko guy basically ruined the 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 holy grail land. And I didn't. Well, it I, was it was the autobahn of the U.S. And I I thought it was just like that. But I drove out in my drove out to Seattle, and it was I noticed there were speed limit signs. I just ignored them because I like, am they're not real. Right? I was gonna say I'm curious how strictly they enforce this even today now. They have one cop per hundred square miles, so it's whatever you think you can get away with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you don't get great fuel well, economy at 120, but... No, but even if they do stop you doing 95, 100, are they going to make that big of a fuss about it if there's no one else on the road? So, so my question is, why can't we have this anymore? Why Why not? Why can't we just let people... Because cars Chris. are... If you look back to, like, 1985, 1994, whatever, the cars now, if you buy a brand-new BMW or even a brand-new Hyundai or Kia... The thing is fully capable of setting the cruise control at 100 miles well, an hour. Not to mention how much safer. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, but the on the other opposite end of that argument, my neighbor who just bought a new Mazda came over to my house to show me, "Hey, look, I've got this light in my mirror, so I don't need to look anymore." 
<laughs> I mean, oh yeah, the blind spot the awareness. Blind spot monitoring. Yeah. And those are the kind of people you want doing that. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, I can see both sides. Yeah, it's why we can't have nice things. What, what exactly? If we, what if we did like special licensing? Book, actually, <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. Why don't we have a special license? Where it allows I would totally you, agree with that. Absolutely. You know, you could go to maybe like you get recertified once a year and you could on lonely stretches of the world, you could or the United States, you could drive whatever speed you wanted to. If you're only endangering yourself, what's the problem? Because I feel like everyone and their mother would then go get this special license. Well, they have and a class still C, be... class D license True. You know, already. What What about making just another class? That... True. Maybe you yeah. have your car get DOT certified to a certain thing. And then if your car passes and you pass the certain test, then you can go and drive whatever the fuck speed you want in. In uh, isn't there a toll road in Texas? Yeah, yeah. In between like Waco and Austin, the toll road it's eighty-five mile an hour speed limit. No one obeys it. Everyone's because it's a private road. It's, yeah, essentially. I, I mean, it's not a government toll road. It's a private company toll road, right? Um, I think. I well, don't know. I don't know the specifics behind it, but I know when the road was first christened, they had um, Hennessy and his Venom GT like. Uh, you know, breaking the road by doing 200 plus mile an hours on it, waving a Texan flag. <laughs> right, right. People are still doing that right now, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's almost one of those optional speed limit roads. Right. Well, it's I guess it's whatever. We just can't have nice things. I guess is yeah. the, is the everything's ruined. So, um, one thing we do with all of our guests, kind of at the end, is I want to find out. Uh, I got a question for you guys, and we'll go through one by one. I want to know what your five cars that you would want to own for the rest of your life. And one of them must be a daily driver. No, well, not only that you own them for the rest of your life, these are your only five cars. This is it. You get five rest cars, rest of your life, and one of them has to be a daily because nobody's driving around a Ferrari 250 GTO to the grocery store. So, Well, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Dan or Mike, who, who wants to start us out? Five. You go first. All right, Space, you're up. What do you got? Um. Definitely like a three liter CSL BMW. Okay. But that's whatever. Everyone loves those right now. My Alfa Romeo that I have. So you're I, keeping the Alfa. Keeping the Milano Verde. Never getting rid that of that. That is thing. really brave. <laughs> I, I will be buried in that car. I, I'm sure you probably will. That's um, a factual statement. <laughs> probably a what, the Toyota, the Hilux or Helix truck. Okay. That thing that could be a good daily or yeah. post apocalyptic vehicle. Yeah. Um, supercar, got to do something ridiculous. Probably like a Zonda, something Pagani. Um, got to do tour of the factory once, and it was just like blew I bet my that mind. That was incredible. Checking that. I never out. thought about the zombie apocalypse. Like, what if you pick your five cars? And they all can't drive across a barren wasteland. Yeah, right. what, you got to account for that. What's the Hence context? The Toyota. And um, last car, I don't. I have no idea. Um, Just pick something for your wife. Maybe something like a little micro car. Okay. Um, old school Fiat Five Hundred would be fun. Okay, <laughs> right on, right on. Matt, what do you got? No, Dan's got to go next. I got to have time. Five cars okay. is a tall order. <laughs> so I would definitely. Uh, Pick a old 240Z, the 73 240Z that I had before. Um, With that specific car, you'd find uh, that car. No, no, I'd one? build another one. Okay. Um, for the actually, that's a great point about the the bug out vehicle. But I think I'd take a uh, Icon Land Cruiser okay. as your bug out vehicle. I think that'd be sweet. Now, what is the Icon? Uh, you, know, you ever heard of Icon? I guess not. Uh, look it up, Jonathan Ward. He builds these amazing. Oh, uh, are these vehicles. like the overland um over anything or the yeah. they're yeah, over engineered. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh they're really sweet. Um 
I think uh, an AMG E Class wagon would be awesome that, as a daily. daily. Yeah, yeah that for would be sure. a great like daily. a new one. Yeah. Oh yeah, that thing's <laughs> sweet. Um, oh, supercar. I don't know. You don't have to have a supercar if you don't want yeah, to. You gotta have something. So you're up to what? What is this? That's four. That's right three. three. That's three. Okay. He's got two um, more. I would, uh, while you're I would th- pick a weird race car, probably. Okay. Yeah, you gotta have the race like, car. Like if you like, you ever see the uh, the BMW Z4 track cars? The, the what are the what series are those? The DTM car. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. would like totally. The liquid Molly ones. I would love one of those. Yeah, yeah, that would be sweet. And then uh, actually a good idea for the for the wife kind of vehicle, like a Nissan Figaro. Figaro. I don't know what oh, that I don't is. Know what a Nissan Figaro oh, is. They look one up. They're really really. Can cool. you describe it's it for us? It looks. Yeah, it looks like a. It looks like a Fiat 500, like an old one, but it's it's okay. a 2000 model year car. Okay. Yeah. Do they, it's pretty did neat. they sell it here in the U.S.? No, they never did. You can so import it now. You can't import them now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And let me let me first, pref- before you go, I'll give you an extra second to think. The reason I pick five, because I see all these guys with like just ridiculous amount of collector cars, and it's just too many. I feel like five cars is the perfect amount to be able to own. Because you can have a daily, you can have a truck, you can have something for the wife, you can have you can have a supercar, and then you can have a race car. It gives you enough breadth to have something, but not so many cars that you can't appreciate and drive them all. You start getting too many cars, then pretty soon yeah. you got so many that they're kind of in there, and you got to move another one to get another one out, and then they. Well, you know. my point to this was, if you have this much money for these cars, you're gonna have a hangar somewhere, or you know, a, a nice pole barn. So I don't know. That's a problem. Uh, well, that's just my thoughts. I- I'm just going to have these lean-to garages you can buy out of Menards. In there my you front go. Fill it. <laughs> With the tarp the over the yeah. top. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just five of them lined up. Neighbors can stare at me, but I don't have no HOA. <laughs> so I think I think, uh, I think, think Space will probably have a reaction to this. I think, or the AMC, the AMX, the Javelin. I should have said that yeah. too. I, oh, that love the, the yeah. Javelin. I think they're a little My under. Buddy's got a Donahue. I think they're a little underappreciated as far as capturing to a T the per- perfection of, of of 60s muscle car styling. They're they're not the Chevelle that everybody's it's in like love with. The Mustang. Javelin isn't what would come to mind. I just every time I see that car, I just it's the most beautiful example of that era of design as far as muscle cars in America go for me. When you well, look at the old Trans Am racing and stuff, they're always like in the photo, but it's right. never like the car that's <laughs> right. featured in they, the photo. They're always got, there. They've got the most perfect duckbill and everything. I don't know. It's just I really AMC like it. AMC made their own engines too, didn't they? Uh well I'm not as familiar with them as that that's that's purely a styling <laughs> thing so okay. if I were ever gonna buy one I, I would get to know them a little bit better but uh, too too much of my head right now is dedicated to useless E30 knowledge essentially <laughs> so you're gonna have a, a a javelin and then four E30s uh well <laughs> I do I I I do like BMWs to race from the late 80s when they're cheap. Uh, as far as owning the new ones, uh, I'm not really in, into any of it. You know, you, you see the Alpinas and everything like that, and they're really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, I got the opportunity to sit in one, but it just never had the feeling of, like, I would never get sick of owning this thing as far as, like, it, it entertains me. It's not a huge pain because as an engineer, when you say, what are the five cars you want to own? I think to myself, what are the five cars I want to fix? And maintain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and like anything new. For, yeah, it's, new technology. Could you imagine what Teslas are going to be like in like 10 years? Right. Oh, my God. Right. Well, the door handles are already falling apart. Yeah, you, like, Have you, you see read videos these? of 
the oh, wow. pictures of the line, like poking the door handle. Because like, the door handle pops out. It's flush with the body lines, if you don't know. Right, right. So when you approach it, it has to pop out. So there's all these micro switches and sensors. They're already failing. Yeah. But anyways. It's not better. So I think after that, I would have to honestly say a perfect factory restored Mark II, completely unmodified Mark II Volkswagen Golf Gross. GTI. Oh, that's a good choice. I, I, look, the whole reason I got into the car game was my buddy's Montana Green Mark II GTI. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the car that made me think, wow, cars are not the garbage I saw rolling around southeastern Wisconsin. You know what I'm saying? So, well, the Mark II GTI is such a, you know, it was such a leap forward from a Mark I GTI in terms mm -hmm. of, sure. of, of, you know, the seats and the interior and the motor and the 16 valve and everything 16 like valve that. Came out. And, uh, the problem is that finding one of those now that's not a total pile, mm -hmm. any, even anywhere in the country, if you were to go get one from Arizona, it's still not going to run because the CIS is so antiquated and difficult to deal with. But when they work, they're fantastic. I'd say the uh, the RS6 Avant uh, is something okay. that is just... They're automatic, though. Typically. Yeah. Well, listen, now you're an you engineer. Know, buying groceries or whatever. I don't want to yeah. shift. Okay, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Manually. Uh, so that, you know, something like that where it's a car. I feel like when Mercedes makes a high powered wagon, it's like, yeah, Mercedes makes high powered wagons. That's what they do. But when Audi makes a ridiculously purposeless, over engined wagon, yeah, something it's the, special. What, twin turbo V10 yeah, they put in I that just, thing? So that one I like. Uh, I would say. Uh, at this point in my life, I've grown to appreciate trucks, uh, although they are way overpriced. So uh, it would be some kind of a truck, probably a Chevy. Hopefully that uh, invites some anger in your viewership for people who like Fords or whatever. <laughs> we, we're going to do a full segment later, I think, on, on the whole... Um, the rivalry, rivalry. Yeah, we're gonna talk rivalry. Yeah. Car marks. Yeah. So we haven't gotten. There I'm a yet. Chevy guy too for trucks. I just I don't see any point in owning anything else. And so uh, for my fifth pick, it's got to be something just out of control, amazing. And so if we're open to absolutely anything, and even this will will draw some ire, but I would pick one of the last generation high revving V8 Formula One cars. <laughs> oh yeah. Could you imagine being wealthy enough to just get that street legal somehow and drive it around? Yeah. Or just Why has do no an rich dude done that by now? So I, Can you imagine swapping that into any chassis? Well, so there are people who take the Formula 3000 motors and so on from Renault and swap them into something that has no purpose. Yeah, there was the rally guy in New Zealand. and There's that minivan. And, okay. But, wow. you know, as, as long as we're opened up to that, uh, you know, people are nostalgic for the V10s and the turbos and all that. And... That's cool, but I personally would just want one of those last screaming V8s before they switched over to the boring. My favorite, uh, this is obviously this is kind of predictable for me, but my favorite F1 engine is the, the one that Porsche built. Oh, what was that, a V12? The old, no, the flat, or, flat, flat 16, wasn't it? No, no, this no, is like a little Le Mans, V8 or V8, little V8 thing with twin turbos. It was No, it's the six-cylinder where it looks like uh, Johnny Rocket 5 or whatever it is from the... Do you know what I'm talking about, Chris? I don't know who Johnny Rocket 5 is. What was the stupid what short was. circuit? Wasn't that the movie? Yeah, it looks like a robot. Yeah, Johnny 5, That's yeah. just Johnny 5. The engine, if you pull it up, it, the way the intercooler and the intake manifold comes down, it looks like it a robot. Is it a modern engine or an older? No, this is, is, yeah, this is a little... I thought it, the, like the 970... It was, it was designed by Metz, it was designed they? by Hans Metzger. Well, that's Lamar. He's yeah, talking was Formula like a flat 1. 12 or something? Yep, yeah, that was all flat 12. Yeah, that's all the 917 and 917K stuff. I'm just going to pull it up here so we can. 
it's very similar to that. There's one shot I've seen where it's like straight on and it looks, I don't know why, but it looks like a robot. Let's see, yeah, right here. It's the tag turbo engine. Yep. Yeah, it's the it's the V6. This thing is it was pretty. I forget pretty how fantastic. much power they made out of that thing. There, just insane levels of boost. I almost just like it just because of the way it looks. When you look at that, it just looks phenomenal. We'll make sure that we we post one of those up. But well, we um, were down at uh, we were down at F1. Uh, was it two years ago? And they had the vintage F1 cars out there, where it was a giant four cylinder with a turbo. That's you know. 12 inches across right yeah. they were they made uh what 1500 horsepower at yep. 100 rpm out of the rev band it was crazy it's like we've been on this slippery i don't want to get into complaining about f1 too much because i could just do that for the next half <laughs> i was hour. gonna say we could do that for an episode as it well it's like we're almost like on this slippery slope with motorsports and f1 everything like we're everything every year something kind of gets taken away that was special now you're talking the, for like regulations and the just everything yeah safety regulations power regulations uh efficiency it's got to be able to only use this much fuel and it's got to have the you know it's it's i feel like it was the way f1 should be is they should have like uh they should have a box right yep. so they and should as have long like, as your car fits yep, in the box yep so it's, it's like an eight by ten by eight box or whatever or eight <laughs> by fifteen or whatever the whatever box size you want to make be if the car fits in that box and it has this displacement run it and that's it. But then, and but typically you can't do anything with the car once it's built, right? You have to run that car through the season, right? I mean, you have to. You only have a certain amount of engines that you can have. Well, if, if you can't re-engineer the car halfway. No, through. no, no. Aero stuff, Aero stuff is free. Constantly. Yeah. My point is though is that if you see something that another team is doing, maybe halfway through the season, you you can change. You can have like maybe six races to adapt and just to make things more interesting. Just. Like if you see that, oh, Mercedes is running their turbocharger off the off the engine and you know off the center of the engine or whatever the, the f they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Like six months into the or six races in, you're allowed to make that technological change if you want to try and keep things competitive, so you don't have one team running away with the thing the whole time. Yeah, so I'm pretty. I'd say I'm sympathetic to that idea. Uh, there's a lot of what I think fundamentally about Formula One gets annoying, and it's really a, true of all racing series, is that when you have a rule set and a governing board where it's easier for another team to complain you out of technological advancement yeah. rather than to say, oh, that's a good idea. We're going to do it too. That is a bummer from a viewership standpoint. And also it's demotivating when you're out on the track. You know, I mean, we're not exactly re-engineering and 3D printing and doing all kinds of cool magnesium stuff on our E30. But when we come up with some swap from some part in a junkyard and somebody comes out there and complains that what we're doing shouldn't be legal. Really? That's a bummer. Yeah. I think a racing series should, should support innovation and should foster innovation regardless. Well, they're dealing with the same thing that they're dealing with. You know, formula one's trying to curtail the same thing that champ car is, which is you can spend your way to the top. Oh, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. The, the way you would get around it is if you allow the other teams to innovate throughout the season. I, th I think so that nothing's would, proprietary, basically. Right. So you don't, you don't you're not locked in with this engine technology that no one else can use then for the rest of the season. And you're just fucked. Like you, you'll have yeah. like I mean these teams. There's no way for them to to keep. Is up. that how it's set up currently? Yeah, basically. They lock in the number of changes you can make to your engine. They lock in the number of engines you can have. Uh, there was a little kerfuffle recently, or well, maybe a month ago, where basically Formula <laughs> One ba kerfuffle. basically said, like, uh, we're going to go down to three engines. And everybody just said, 
that's a horrible, horrible, horrible idea. Except for the one team out there who can probably make three engines survive. It's like, oh. that's great. You guys are geniuses. We should do that. Yeah, it sucks. Um, but the worst thing that happened to F1 is that David Hobbs, Lee Diffie, and Steve Mark, they're done. And who, who are these guys for us? Not so these were the NBC Sports Network uh, commentators. They're okay, out. Okay, so these are the announcers that are leaving F1. Yeah, so there's going to be none they're, of that They anymore. quit or they got fired? They well, M- Sexual harassment, I'm F- assuming? <laughs> Might as well be. be. Although they are, the F1 girl, the grid girls were voted on whether they were going to leave or not. So right. that's kind of up in the we air as well. We talked about that in the last um, episode. But ESPN has the rights to F1 coverage now, I believe. So these guys are out of a job as of now. Is that in the U.S. market or worldwide? That I don't know. I think this was just NBC's coverage in the U.S. Is yeah, they lost the contract to ESPN. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So ESPN we'll is fighting happens. to survive what their. Oh my God, are they, they ever? Will though, right? They get Will Buxton though, right? Don't. I think he goes. ESPN? He's a, he's an NBC dude, isn't he? Well, I know, but I think he's going to go to ESPN. Let's hope. You See, the, but that's always been the hard part about introducing it to the U.S. market, and I think it's because the people who run these media companies are like. We're going to make a step change and grow viewership instantaneously from broadcasting the Montreal race. And it's just like, that's not going to happen because what they end up doing, the biggest thing people complained about in the U.S. is, well, NBC Sports gets it when they broadcast it to the American market. They're explaining every ridiculous, simple rule that most viewership understands implicitly. We want to hear the small details as viewers who love the sport. You end up basically finding another source to watch the race from outside of the United States that gives you that minutia. Well, so they're trying to grow it in the U.S., and they have to do that. So that's the balance. That's why these guys were good, and I didn't know they were leaving, so that's that's kind of a tragedy there. But because they rode that balance pretty well. And they were funny. And they were funny. And that's yeah. when you said kerfuffle, that's why I laughed. Because Hobbs says yeah, kerfuffle right. yeah, all, you're right. all you're the right. time. Well, and plus, they raced. They have lived this entire yeah, lives. Absolutely. absolutely. Who are they going to bring in? Somebody who on the side broadcasts for the NFL and the NBA? I mean, they're going to be I reading know, who, cue who cards. Who else could there possibly be that would be better? I can't think of anyone. Well, on that note, guys, we, uh, we're we running out of time. I really appreciate you guys coming in. Um, I had a good time. I hope you guys did, too. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review on all these social media and uh, podcast networks, whatever you, Stitcher or iTunes, wherever it is that you listen. We really appreciate that. And as, as always, I'll call for feedback on what we're doing right, what we want to hear more of, and what Chris has been wrong about this episode. A little less kerfuffle. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. A little less kerfuffle. <laughs> <laughs>